morning. There's a story about D.L. Moody. I assume everybody is familiar with D.L. Moody. He was uh, one of the most uh, famous American preachers. So D.L. Moody went to England. This was his first uh, trip to England where he uh, was preaching for the Lord. And he preached at a church that had a man that looked like a young boy came up to him and said, uh, Mr. Moody, I'd like to, or Brother Moody, I'd like to preach at your church in uh, the United States next, or in America. And Moody thought this guy was just a boy. It turned out he was the famous boy preacher in uh, England. He may not have been that famous yet at the time, but he was a genuine preacher. He loved the Lord and he preached the word. And uh, D.L. Moody wasn't very interested. He had a big church in Chicago and he didn't want this guy messing, messing up with his congregation. But uh, he was going to be gone the weekend that the guy told him he was going to come and he told the people he left behind, let him preach on the prayer meeting on Thursday night and if he does well enough, let him preach Friday night. And if he does well enough, well, you can decide if you want him preaching on Sunday or I can preach on Sunday. And he comes back Saturday, Moody comes back Saturday night and he asks his wife, how did you like this man's preaching? And she said, oh, I liked it very well. And he said, how come? She said, well, he preaches differently from you. <laughs> and uh, he asked, how so? She said, well, he tells sinners that God loves them. Up to that point, that wasn't the type of preaching that D.L. Moody did. He preached people to flee the wrath that is to come. God will judge you for your sins and punish you. And he, in fact, answered his wife, said, well, he's wrong. And she said, well, I think you'll agree with him because he proves everything he says out of the scriptures. And in fact, uh, this, this man, his name was, uh, was Henry Moorhouse. He preached for seven days in a row in uh, Adele Moody's church. Those are the type of revival meetings they had in those days. It wasn't just on Sunday the preaching happened. It was every day. And he stuck with one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. And he preached on that verse every day for seven days. And he, he went from Genesis to Revelation and proved to sinners that God loved them. And he told uh, uh, Brother Moody after that that when he was preaching, telling people to flee the wrath to come, he wasn't fully pulling his sword out of its sheath. If he wanted to preach the full word of God effectively, he needed to pull his sword all the way out, which includes the love that God has for sinners. And today we'll look at a man named Ahab. And uh, I don't know about you, but I first uh, learned I was going to preach about this man. I was thinking, boy, you know, this is, this is a terrible man. He's the worst king that Israel ever had. What am I going to say about him? Well, as I, as I started looking at uh, Ahab, and you can turn with me to uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, Ahab gets more space in the scripture than almost any other king. There are very few kings that actually get more space than him. And really the theme that dominates is God's pursuing Ahab. Uh, there's a famous a poem written called, the, I think, The Hound of Heaven by uh, Milton. 
which describes God as the hound of heaven that's chasing him down, tracking him down like a criminal escaping to the hound that's chasing them, trying to bring them to justice. Well, it's really actually the love of God chasing him and trying to bring him to himself. And I hope you will recognize with me as we look at the word of God today that that's really was God's attitude toward Ahab. God did not hate Ahab. He loved Ahab and actually tried to bring Ahab to himself. Let's start at 1 Kings, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Baal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. We look at this passage, we see the chief sin of Ahab was idolatry. In his case, idolatry was literally having an idol, making an idol. Uh, The idol represented a god called Baal, and he would worship that idol, he would serve that idol, he uh, built a temple for that idol and an altar for that idol. This idol became the center of his life. And really, that is the definition of idolatry. Today we're saying, well, we don't have to worry about that sin. That's, we, don't, we don't have idols in our house. Well, some places in the world, maybe some places even in this city, people may still have idols that they worship. But an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. When we were studying about God in uh, uh, what Christians believe class, we memorized this verse. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your soul. I may have got one of those in reverse, but we have to give God everything that we have. God wants to be the very center of our life, of our love, of our affection, of our desire, the thing we're seeking for. When I have anything else there, and uh, in this day and age, it typically will be money or some material possessions. It could be uh, seeking for an education or advancing your career. It could be uh, wanting to be popular or uh, beautiful or have people think highly of you. People will pursue these things. They'll become the center of their life. That will be their desire, the thing that they're seeking. In the same intensity that Ahab was going after worshipping Baal, they'll be worshipping other things. There'll be something else that they'll be intensely passionate about. And it's not going to be God. Well, that's an idol. It's the same thing. It's the sin of idolatry all over again. Whenever there's something in your life that's more precious to you than God, you're seeking for more ardently than God, well, that's an idol. That's that's a sin that uh, we've all committed. If if you uh, were not a Christian every day of your life, if you didn't love with God with all your heart, your mind, your soul every day of your life, you've committed this sin, the sin of idolatry. And that was the main sin in Ahab's life. And because that was the main sin in Ahab's life, we will see as God is trying to reach Ahab, the first thing he does 
And he'll do it in three different ways. He'll try to show him the superiority of God over this idol that he was worshipping. He was going to show him how much better God is than whatever was this thing that he was seeking after. Uh, the first way God does it, we see in chapter 17. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. God raised a prophet called Elijah to go to Ahab and say, Okay, Ahab, because of this sin, because you're choosing to have this thing, the center of your life, instead of God, there will be no rain on the land for it will turn out to be for three and a half years. Now, today, you know, whether it rains or not, it looks like it might be raining outside. We may not be very happy about the fact it might be raining outside. But all the good things we enjoy come from the rain. If God didn't bring rain upon the land, you will have no vegetation growing. And obviously no vegetables to eat, no food to eat. You'll also have no animals to be enjoying milk products or meat products from because they also depend upon the vegetation, which depends upon the rain, which depends upon God. So God was basically cutting off all uh, joy or, or peace or comfort from the land of Israel for three years. From, really, he was taking it out of Ahab's life uh, because of this sin. And, and uh, we'll see here the response of Ahab in uh, chapter 18. In verse 17, and it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, this is three and a half years later, he said, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandment of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. We see here the response of Ahab, which is unfortunately commonly the response of people. A lot of time, God, in order to get your attention, will take, will bring some sort of trouble upon you. Some sort of difficulty will come upon your life. Just like in Ahab's case, the difficulty was this drought. For three and a half years, no rain came. And often, we, w- we might even recogni- recognize that this trouble is somehow coming upon us from God, and yet we will think that God is being mean to us. We, this is the attitude that Ahab has. Is that you, Elijah, the trouble of Israel? Is that you that brought all these terrible things upon us? Wait a second. Was it Elijah that brought these terrible things upon them? No, it was Ahab's sin. Ahab chose to sin against the Lord. As a result, the Lord was withholding our rain from Ahab. It really was Ahab's sins. And, and one of the problems we have is we don't realize that all our blessings come from God. God is the one that that gives us rain. If it wasn't for God's goodness in the first place, Ahab would never have enjoyed rain upon the land. So really, God has been blessing him, blessing upon blessing, without Ahab deserving it at all. And for one minute, or three years in this case, God takes it away and says, all right, you don't want me, Ahab? Let's see how things are. And things got pretty bad for Ahab. But God wasn't being unfair. God is the one who was always providing these blessings for Ahab. And Ahab was choosing something else rather than God. And so it's perfectly fair for God to withhold it. In fact, it's kindness because God is giving Ahab a taste of things to come. Hell 
is the absence of God and all the good things that God has has for him. And that's exactly where Ahab is heading right now. And God is effectively warning him by taking away something good out of his life and letting him feel a little bit what it's like to be without God. It's really the kindness of God that's doing this. All right, that's the first way God was showing to Ahab his need for the Lord. The second way, we're not going to read very much of it, uh, because that will be covered in another week, will be Elijah's uh, demonstration of who God is on Mount Carmel. Most of you would remember the event. Elijah tells Ahab, okay, gather everyone to me, all of Israel, gather all the priests of Baal, all the priests of, uh, I think, uh, uh, Asherah, one of the other gods that they were worshipping, and, and let's have this test. Okay? I'll build an altar, they'll build an altar, I'll offer an animal, they'll offer an animal, but both of us will call upon the Lord to bring fire from heaven. And the God who answers from heaven with fire, the one who, yeah, we're not going to light a fire, I'm not going to bring a torch or anything, the God that sends fire from heaven will descend upon the altar, that's the true God, let's worship that one. Alright? Sounds like a fair test. All right. Well, listen to Elijah here as he's dealing with this situation in uh, verse 25. So chapter 18, verse 25. So it seems like we're rushing through these chapters, but we have to. There's a lot of material about Ahab. Verse 25 in chapter 18. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called it on the, on the, called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And it was so when midday was past that they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It's amazing to me how Elijah is mocking them here, but really that's his purpose. He is trying to show Ahab and Israel the vanity or the emptiness of this idol they were worshipping. They were worshipping and giving themselves to this thing that could do nothing. It was useless. And, and so this was a simple test. Well, if he's a god, he'll bring fire. Cry out to him. And they cry out and nothing happens. They seek him and there's, there's no good that comes out of it. And uh, that's, that was the, the main lesson that God was trying to teach uh, Ahab here is this idol you have is useless. It can't do anything. And then next to it, uh, Elijah then call upon the Lord and fire comes from heaven, consumes the altar, the sacrifice and the altar and licks the water that they poured all over it. It was really to show the emptiness, the vanity of this idol they were worshipping. And uh, I remember uh, one of my uh, idols uh, when I uh, was in college was, was school. I was thinking, you know, the best thing, the most important thing out there is to go to class, do my homework, get good grades, get the best grade in the class, and, uh, you know, keep going on. And I did it for a year or two, and I did fairly well. And after a year or two of that, it was like, well, 
you know, this is not really making me happy. And so I was looking around, well, maybe there's something else out there that'll make me happy. And I was living in a fraternity at the time, and there were all these people going out and uh, drinking and doing other things, and they seemed to be having a good time. So I said, well, that must be it. I'll go after that. And I spent a couple of my years uh, going, as they say, after uh, uh, women, wine, and song, tying, whatever that type of culture seemed to offer. And after two years of that, I came out empty-handed. That didn't make me happy. That didn't satisfy me. And really, there's only one thing that will satisfy you. God created you for him. He is the only one that's truly wonderful enough to satisfy you. You can worship God and never get tired of it. The more you get to know God, the more you realize how wonderful he is. And uh, as a result, anything else you're going to find will not satisfy you. Eventually, you'll realize it's empty. It's vain. The uh, book of uh, Ecclesiastes was written for that purpose. There was Solomon, King Solomon. He had all the world at his disposal. He could do what he wanted. He tried everything. And at the end of the day, he said, vanity of vanity. Meaning, vanity literally means emptiness. It's nothing. I tried, I did it, and it's empty. There's no use, there's no value. The key word in that whole book is under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. If you take God out of the equation, you can search this world for something worthwhile, and you'll come out with nothing. There will be nothing that will satisfy you. Only God. And that's what God wanted Ahab to see. Right, the, the third uh, occasion where God is revealing himself to Ahab, to show Ahab his need for him, is in chapter 20. We'll start chapter 20, verse 1. <clears throat> now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. There were 32 kings with him, with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers to the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. And the messengers came back and said, Thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, Indeed, I have sent to you, saying, You shall deliver me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children, but I will send my servant to you tomorrow about this time. They shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be whatever is pleasant in their eyes, they shall put their hands and take it. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and the people said to him, Do not listen or con consent. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if enough dust is left in Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, let not the one who put on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. But it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he and the kings were drinking at the command post, that he said to his servants, Get ready! And they got ready to attack the city. 
Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I don't know if you've ever been in trouble or in a tight place. I would guess you were probably never in as tight of a place as Ahab was here. Here he is, he's surrounded. He's in his capital city, he's surrounded by en- enemy armies. It says here there were 32 kings with Ben-Hadad. We learn later on it was an army of over 100,000 people. Ahab had probably around 7,000 troops to fight against them. And this king doesn't just want, you know, some, some kings will say, well, just pay me off and I'll go off. He wants his wives, he wants his children, all his possessions. I mean, Ahab is in desperate, a desperate situation. And the Lord steps into this situation and says, Ahab, I'm going to help you out here. Yeah, I'm going, you see all this multitude, this tens or hundreds of thousands of people? I'll deliver them all into your hand. And uh, we see Ahab believes the Lord, and the Lord is just as good as his word. He delivers this whole multitude into Ahab's hand. And, uh, and again, later on, the same multitude comes against him, an army just as large, he's still just as small. And again, the Lord delivers uh, that army into his hand. And uh, what the Lord is showing here to Ahab is I'm the one that can help you in your troubles. I remember when I, uh, and I've told this story so many times, I, I don't like repeating it, but I once lost my wallet and I remember crying out to the Lord, Lord, help me. It was a very small thing, but sometime when there's nothing else for us to cry out to, we'll cry out to God. And in this particular situation, Ahab cried out to God, or God came to Ahab and offered to Ahab, I'll save you. I'll help you in this situation. I'm the one that can deliver you. You don't see Baal mentioned or anything else. There's nothing else that can help Ahab here. He's in a desperate situation. Only God can come and help him. And God does uh, help Ahab. Now, we didn't talk too much about Ahab's responses. So we've seen three occasions where the Lord comes to Ahab and in some way shows Ahab how he's far greater than the idols that Ahab, that Ahab is choosing to worship. Uh, in the first occasion, when uh, uh, the, the drought was put upon him, we saw Ahab's response was, he looked at God as being at fault. God was being mean. God was uh, the troubler of Israel. He didn't recognize that, that what was happening was fair. In uh, the second time, uh, which we, we didn't mention. Elijah, Ahab at first participates in this event, this religious event, where uh, Elijah shows that God is greater than the idol by bringing down fire from heaven. But then he goes home and he doesn't really change. There's no real change in his life. He, he's happy to participate in this religious event or even revival, if you would, that Elijah is leading. But he goes back home and he's just unchanged. You don't see any change in his life. Uh, in this particular case, after God delivers Ben-Hadad into Ahab's hand, we'll see the following response. This is verse 31. This is after uh, Ahab defeats Ben-Hadad the second time, and he has Ben-Hadad basically at the grasp of his hand. And his servants, that is Ben-Hadad's servants, said to him, Look now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waist and put ropes around their heads. 
and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please, let me live. And he said, Is he still alive? He's my brother. Now the men were diligently watching whether any sign of mercy would come from him, and they quickly grasped at this word and said, Your brother, Ben-Hadad. So they said, so he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into his chariot. Then Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Well, what do you think about that? Not, not good? Seems like a very merciful act. I see heads nodding. Well, right. It's The main thing is he's not doing what the Lord wants him to do with this king. And uh, the Lord may have revealed specifically to Ahab what needed to be done with this king, which kill him and destroy his kingdom. Or it could be that the Lord expected Ahab to know what he told the children of Israel all along. I'm bringing you into a land you have to take possession of the land, destroy the nations there. This was the judgment of God against the nation. And get rid of them so they don't tempt you into worshipping idols, which was exactly the problem that Ahab had. He needed to destroy this king. And instead, he's using this situation to help himself out a little bit, instead of destroying the king. Let's see God's response uh, to that. And what we'll see here, really, is we'll see a series. We saw three, three ways in which the Lord was showing Ahab his superiority to the idols in Ahab's life. Well, now we'll see, three, we'll see three ways in which the Lord is now trying to convict Ahab of his sin and rejecting the Lord and, and the other wrong things that he's doing. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor by the word of the Lord, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely... As soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. And he found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out to the midst of the battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, God, this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, sullen and displeased, and came to Samaria. All right. So we have a lot of things going on here. First of all, why is this prophet telling somebody to wound him? Well, we'll see. First of all, it, it makes him able to uh, appear as an injured soldier coming from the battle. But there's a, a couple of verses here that show that this man is certainly speaking the Lord's will because the first man that ignored him got killed, just as he prophesied. It was one of these ways the Lord was confirming 
this prophet is as good as his word. What he says is true. You better believe it. Second, uh, why is the prophet comes up with the story? Why is he telling this story to, uh, to Ahab about uh, uh, being, being a, uh, in, the, in the battle and somebody giving him into his hands and that person going loose? The purpose of that whole story is very similar to the one that Nathan told David about uh, the... Uh, remember the story about uh, the rich man and the poor man? The rich man took the poor man's sheep instead of using one of his sheep. And it was to convict David of the act of adultery. Well, in the same way, he's putting a, something before Ahab that Ahab would be able to relate to. Something that, in fact, Ahab himself has also done. Uh, so the picture here is this, this man was a soldier. Another soldier brought to him a captive of war. And he was responsible to keep that captive of war for the, the person who gave it to him. But instead of keeping him, he's running around, he's doing this and doing that, and the guy runs away. Well, at the end of the day, should he be held responsible for what happened? Yes, obviously. Somebody committed into his hand something to his keeping, and he wasn't being responsible with it. And so he goes with Ahab with, with that, and Ahab needs to make the judgment. And Ahab makes the judgment. Well, you're guilty. It's your own fault. You yourself are determining this penalty by not being responsible with this person. Well, the prophet then turns it on Ahab and shows Ahab, look, you've done exactly the same thing. The Lord placed, placed Ben-Hadad in your hand. He belonged to the Lord. You should have done with him what the Lord wanted you to do. And instead, you've let him go for your own profit. You're guilty. You're just as guilty as this person that you've now condemned. The purpose of this all was to bring Ahab's sin home. God was working very hard to try to show Ahab, look, what you're doing is wrong. You're, you're you're sinning here. This is not right, what you're doing. And the response of Ahab, unfortunately, it says uh, he's, he's sullen and displeased, uh, a.k.a. pouting. He's basically not agreeing with God's judgment, which is really one of the typical responses to God points to you your sin. A lot of time it's like, wait a second, what I'm doing is not wrong. You're not being fair here with God, saying that what I'm doing is wrong. That's just not right. Well, we, we, we react to God's pointing the finger at us, trying to wave it off, saying, no, we didn't really do anything that's wrong over here. Now, remember, God is doing it all this to Ahab's good. He's trying to make Ahab realize that he is a sinner under the judgment of God. Another verse we memorize, which is you'll find from Genesis to Revelation, in the, uh, what Christians believe class, is the wages of sin is death. Ahab will have to answer to God for all of his sin. He has a lot bigger troubles to worry about than the king of Syria and what the king of Syria will do to him. And God is trying to make him aware of this trouble. And there's actually a little bit of hidden good news here that's easy to miss. But when the prophet tells his story, there's an option. Either your life will go for his life. You lose this man, you forfeit your own life. Or you'll pay a talent of silver. Well, talents of silver would have been an enormous amount of money that the average person certainly wouldn't be able to pay. But silver is one of those uh, key uh, symbols in the scriptures. If you look at the scripture, the word silver or uh, the metals of silver is a picture of God's redemption. A price has, yes, it's something that that person couldn't have paid, 
but someone else could have paid what this guy is owed. In fact, Ahab could have probably paid off the debt that this quote-unquote soldiers came to him with, said, I'm in trouble. This, this is what the man told him. Ahab could have probably said, all right, I'll, I'll give a talent of silver. I'll, I'll pay off your debt, and you can go free. Ahab could have been a generous king and done something like that. But, and he, he doesn't. But the key here, here is there is a satisfaction, a price that was paid that can deliver us from the penalty of our sin. And that's why we were worshiping the Lord this morning. The price has been paid. The Lord Jesus had died for us. The, the Bible says that, uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, meaning at no expense to themselves, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is, redemption. The price has been paid. There is a resource, a money amount that God can draw from to pay what you deserve for your sins that you could be justified freely so that you or Ahab could come into a right relationship with God and have God be right with God. Okay. Uh, the second second work of God to convict Ahab of his sins is in uh, chapter 21, which again, that chapter will cover in another week. I don't want to take too much out of it. That's a relatively famous story also of Naboth, the Jezreelite. He had a vineyard next to Ahab's palace, and Ahab wanted that vineyard so he can put a vegetable garden in there, and uh, Naboth won't let him have it, and in fact rebukes Ahab for that, which Ahab pouts again about, but we won't get into that one. Uh, so Jezebel offers to take care of it for, Naboth, for Ahab, and she murders Naboth. And then uh, Ahab can now go and take possession of the land. And that's, in fact, what he's doing in chapter 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is, in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying... Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Then Ahab said to Elijah, Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. All right, so God's convicted him convicting him here of this murder. He's telling Ahab, look, you're murdering somebody to take their property away. And because of it, God is going to judge you. And uh, we see here Ahab's response. So the first typical response people, people have when God is pointing the finger at them and trying to convict them of their sin is, you know, God, you're being unreasonable. This is not right. The second one, second mistake people can make is this, looking at God as their enemy. Have you found me, O oh, my enemies? Oh, well, God just hates me. That's why he's doing all these things. God is really he's, uh, uh, trying to spoil my life. He's trying to make me miserable. God, God, God is working against me. He's against me. Well, God wasn't against Ahab. That's what Elijah makes clear in the rest of the verse. God was against Ahab's sins. He's actually trying to save Ahab from his, He's trying to help Ahab. Here's Ahab in his sins, being apart from God, heading to eternal damnation. And God is trying to wake him up and showing him the evil of his sins 
to get him to turn away from those or flee their destiny that, that's awaiting him because of what he's doing. He's not against him. He's for him. God is not against you. He's for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's God's desire is, is to reach us, to save us from our sin. He's never talking about our sins, condemning our sins because he's against us. It's because he's for us that he's actually doing it. Continuing in the same passage, uh, we'll skip some verses here. Verse 21 through uh, 26 describe the calamity that God was going to bring upon Ahab and Ahab's house. Now God is telling him, I'm not just judging you, I'm going to destroy really all your, your family. And, and all your posterity. There won't remain anybody from Ahab in the land when I'm done bringing my judgment upon your sin. And it seems to finally click something in Ahab. He, he really is able to get Ahab to finally wake up a little bit to the reality of, of his sin and the coming judgment. That's in verse 27. So it was when Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days, but in the days of his son I will bring the calamity on his house. And uh, it seems like something great has just happened. If this was the end, the last we knew about Ahab, we'd say, well, yes, finally, Ahab realized he turned from his sins, he repented, and God forgave him his sin. Well, some, maybe some bad things will happen, but at least he'll be in heaven. Well, there's a problem, and the problem is that this is not the last chapter about Ahab. There's another chapter after this. And that chapter becomes very evident that Ahab has not really changed, or at least hasn't been saved. So really what you have here is perhaps something that uh, we might call today a, a false religious experience, uh, often culminating in what we would call a false profession. I had one like that that happened to me when I was uh, first meeting with Rick. I started coming to church. Rick uh, came out to meet with me uh, a couple times. And uh, one of those times, I, I became convinced that God was real, that Jesus was the Messiah. But I didn't really understand very much about sin or why, what, what how God viewed my sin. And so Rick pointed out very clearly, look, your sin is separating you from God. And what Jesus came is to save you from your sin. And you need to turn to God, repent of your sins, and ask God to forgive them. And uh, I, I came to the intellectual understanding or intellectual agreement, I should say, with Rick. And like, oh yeah, that's true. What he says is true. All these things. Rick pointed from the scriptures all the sins in like Romans chapter 1. And I realized, yeah, it's true that I'm a sinner. And it's true the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And uh, I don't want to die. And so, yes, it makes sense. I need to turn to God and ask God to forgive me. And so I did that. And it didn't really relieve any of my burden at the time. And it wasn't obvious to me at the time. At the time, I thought, well, I did what I was supposed to do. So I guess that makes me a Christian now. And I, I professed being a believer after that point. But it wasn't. I wasn't really saved. And it probably for the same reason Ahab wasn't really saved here. 
I didn't really understand my sin and how God really viewed my sin. I had some glimpse of it. And I think Ahab here got a glimpse of his sin and the danger he was under. And so he, he did whatever he thought would save him. Like, okay, I'll put that in a sack. Like, I'll do this, I'll do that. You know, this, this will somehow has to work. Or, you know, this, God has respected people who did this in the past, so this has to work for me too. Well, the reality is uh, we don't see any evidence that he's really convicted about his sin. There's no confession of sin. There's no repenting. There's nothing about his sin mentioned here. It's really just fear of the judgment of God that happens. And the same was true in my life. I really, I intellectually came to realize, well, I'm a sinner. Yeah, God's going to judge me, so I need to do something about it. But there wasn't a real understanding of my sin. There wasn't an, an understanding of what Jesus really did for me. And so I kept on walking until a day, or oh, really a few months later, that the Lord finally opened my understanding to what it is Jesus really did for me and what it what my sins really were before God. But that's where Ahab was here. So he, he went through this religious experience. And the last chapter about Ahab is chapter 22. We'll finish with that. Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know what remote, that remote Gilad, in Gilad is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at remote Gilad? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramot Gilad to fight, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here, that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he doesn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say such things. We'll stop here. So we see here clearly there's, there's an issue with Ahab. In spite of whatever religious experience he just went through, he's, uh, he, first of all, he's not interested in what the Lord has to say at all, because he didn't even consult the Lord to start with. When Jehoshaphat is asking him to consult the Lord, it's like a man that, you know, opens the page in the Bible that he knows what it says. You see, it says this over here, so I should do what I want to do. But deliberately avoiding other parts of the Bible that he knows says something completely contradictory to what he wants to do. He doesn't want to hear what God really has to say. He has all these prophets that he somehow raised up in front of him. Maybe he liked the style of, of worshipping Baal. He liked having 400 prophets in his court that will tell him what he wants to hear. So... These are prophets of the Lord. They claim to say what the Lord has to say. And yet really they're saying what he wants to say. So he's not really interested in what the Lord has to tell him. Well, he fortunately has a good friend like Jehoshaphat that says, no, I really want to know what the Lord has to say. And so for the final time in his life, he's really asking the Lord what the Lord thinks. And the Lord brings Micaiah. Micaiah uh, says the following. Starting verse 17. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. 
And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Joseph, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up, that he may fall at remote Gilad? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Now therefore look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. You will search the scripture really hard to find a passage like this one. It's really the Lord, if you would, last the Lord is not desperate, but desperate attempt to try to get Ahab's attention. Is unveiling the divide between earth and heaven and lets him see into heaven what's going on. Look what your sins are leading to. Look, the Lord himself is proclaiming judgment. The Lord himself is working the plans that will lead to your death. If this is not a call to turn around before it's too late, I don't know what it is. And yet, we see here, uh, as uh, if we would follow the passage, that the king of Israel just had enough. He doesn't want to hear anymore. He's, he's, he's plugging his ear. He doesn't want to hear what the Lord has to say anymore. And that's really the end of Ahab. When, once he does that, he seals his doom. And he goes into battle, he tries to hide, he uh, pretends to be somebody other than the king trying to avoid this doom. And yet some uh, random archer shoots an arrow completely at random. It penetrates through the divides in the armor of Ahab and, and kills him. And all the, the prophecy that the Lord said about him comes to pass. But the main message really for today is God loved Ahab and he did everything he could to turn Ahab from his sins and bring him into God. Uh, if you were to read the, uh, the poem uh, The Hounds of Heaven that Milton wrote, uh, it has a good story. The man flees away from the Lord. The Lord comes after him. He flees away somewhere else. The Lord comes after him. He flees somewhere else. The Lord comes after him. And finally, he surrenders to the Lord. Well, it's possible to avoid the hound of heaven. God will not chase you forever. He will do everything he can to save you. But at the end, the choice is yours. You're going to have to decide, am I going to come to him or not? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. You are such a loving God. Where would any of us be without you? Lord, I confess I was like Ahab. You had to chase me down. And uh, you did faithfully and lovingly and brought me to yourself. Lord, if there's uh, anybody here today, and uh, you know where they are, that perhaps have been doing what Ahab has been doing. Uh, instead of seeking you, they've been seeking after other things. Instead of listening to your uh, calls to repent of their sins, they've been putting you off. Lord, I ask that uh, you bring them home, and bring them home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>